Welcome to The Institute, a podcast of the Institute for the Arts and Humanities at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. I'm Clay, Communications Specialist. In this episode, Coordinator for Faculty Programs, Philip Hollingsworth, discusses the work of Aristotle with Associate Professor in Philosophy, Mariska Leunison, and UNC Honors alumnus, Jake Rode, Class of 2017, who work together in the inaugural IAH Honors Collaboration Grant. The grant offers a $2,000 award to students and pairs them with a faculty fellow to get a unique research opportunity. So suppose to start out, could you give a little summary of what your project is during this semester? Yeah, sure. So what we're trying to do is sort of take up a new approach to ways people have been looking at Aristotle's natural treatises, natural science. So um, the way people usually approach his natural treatises is to think that they are more or less finished um, research projects. And so for that reason, they turn to those treatises and look at the structure of explanation to see how he uses division and definition, also to compare it to Aristotle's theory of, of science, of how you should be doing scientific inquiry. And so there's not much research on Aristotle's own research methods or what we call heuristics, like how do you actually discover explanations and causes of things. And the assumption had been that that's just because there's not much present, because what we get is already a finished report. But then there's some of these natural treatises that cover areas that I call empirically underdetermined. So when you talk about embryology, about how um, vision works, about heavenly phenomena, you don't have that many empirical facts to go on. You can't really dissect stars and planets. There's only a limited amount of stuff you can do to discover how embryology works. You can open a bunch of chicken eggs that are you know, fertilized on different days, but from there on to then talk about how that works in, in mammals is a little bit more complicated. So in those treatises, you find all kinds of other strategies, and Aristotle will appeal to analogy or things that sound reasonable given other things we know. And sort of another traditional approach to that has been to say, well, that's not science. So people have been thinking that Aristotle uses one type of method to do science in the natural treatises and one type of method to do philosophy, and that is called dialectic. And in dialectic, you start with a puzzle that is given to you by tradition, and then you work through the puzzle by different forms of reasoning and arguments. And what you end up with is, is not science, it's just something else. And so what we're trying to do is complicate that picture by turning to treatises that people don't really look much at. <laughs> and so right now you're working on a co-authored article, correct? Yeah. And Jake, could you talk a little bit about your experience in this partnership? Under so with Mariska's suggestion under her direction, I was just sort of combing through the treatises and I had there's certain keywords that Aristotle uses to denote that when he uh, he's reached like a difficulty that needs to be resolved in some way. Traditionally, and it, it's associated with the dialectical way, but I'm thinking not always it can be a scientific problem as well. So first I went into this online resource called the Thesaurus Linguae Graecae, and I'd never really worked with it before. So that was really fun and interesting for me. It's um, pretty much the entire Greek corpus of ancient Greek literature is on there, and they have a very sophisticated word search tool. 
And I was looking through that in these treatises and going through and translating them and looking at whether these words were being used in the way I wanted to, whether they were interesting passages that were useful for our project. So once I went through, I documented them, translated them, I highlighted the passage I found interesting. And then Merska and I talked about the features in them, uh, what how Aristotle is working through them, how they fit in with our project as a whole. And so sort of once we had brainstormed uh, these passages with a list of the salient features, all that was left to do was to look at the secondary sources. Um, Robert Bolton and Thomas Johansson have written, uh, Bolton wrote in uh, Dekaila, which is another empirically underdetermined circumstance since that talks about the heavens, about dialectic and science and that. And Johansson wrote a study of uh, Aristotle on sense organs that includes a discussion of dissensu. So I looked at what they had to say and compared it with our findings. And then all that was left to do was just write part of it up. So that part was all done by Jake, sort of the whole, like, so, so I gave sort of the, the framework and then the, the actual selection of the text and the focus that the paper is taking, that was all Jake's doing. Um, and the particular texts that we're focusing on now, we're talking about them because they were interesting to Jake. Jake, I understand you're, you're going to be in graduate school in the fall. How do you think this collaboration has prepared you for that transition? I think it's prepared me really well. I'm going to grad school to work on these exact issues. In June, I'll be going to a conference on this text. Um, not where I'll present my original research, but I'm sure it'll come up as we work our way through it. It's showed me how to do original research and some of sort of the nitty-gritty details that go into finding something new to say that hasn't been said before, using resources uh, like the Thesaurus Linguae Graecae uh, and f going through the secondary literature and figuring out what's important and what's relevant and what should be addressed, I think are important skills for someone like me who wants to do independent research in this exact area. For me, Jake's help has been really awesome because there's only, I mean, there's very limited time during the semester to do anything but like service, teaching. And Jake is, I mean, he's a really smart student and he just works through text really quickly. And so the amount of material he was able to gather and then just bring together and then, you know, we could just talk about it fairly quickly and efficiently. We covered a lot of grounds and for me this was sort of a test case to see if there was enough there even to start a new project on it and I think Jake has shown that you know there's there's so much material there that we yeah there's no problem to continue this and I I'm hoping that it might be slow going because both of our lives are going to change pretty soon but hopefully we can keep working on the paper I hope to be at the same conference yeah, where would you like to submit this paper? Do you have any ideas of a particular journal or...? or well... <laughs> OSAP, all OSAP. the way to the top. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah. What is I, that for folks that aren't in the... <laughs> <laughs> so Oxford Studies in Ancient Philosophy, it's, it's a top journal. And okay. they, they reject most of the stuff that gets yeah, submitted, yeah. but they do it quickly, so there's no harm in... Well, I think that'll high. be a good process for you, Jake, as well, is to go through that. Uh, rejection, rejection and acceptance. <laughs> no, it, it, I think it's a big I'm, part of it. Yeah. And to do that really early on, I think, is a real advantage for you going into graduate school. Jake, can you talk a little bit about the origins of your interest in classics and philosophy, if you can pinpoint that? Gosh, classics is easy. I had a really excellent Latin teacher, and be, uh, I'm from Chapel Hill. I went to Phillips Middle School in East Chapel Hill High, and for resource reasons, we shared one Latin teacher who sort of commuted back and forth, Jenny Hoffman, 
and taking Latin for her with six years was awesome. And I knew I wanted to keep doing classics, especially because she had uh, she did her uh, graduate work here. Okay. Uh, so and many of the professors she worked with are still here. James O'Hara she worked mm-hmm. with, who's still here. Sarah Mack was her advisor, who's my re- retired, but was my next door neighbor growing up. Uh, so I knew I wanted to, do, to keep doing that. Philosophy was sort of something I came to on my own. I think I was one of those annoyingly sort of precocious high school kids who carries around like a dog-eared copy of Beyond Good and Evil. <laughs> <laughs> And I did high school debate, so I sort of learned how to weaponize Heidegger and other critiques from sort of the continental tradition in philosophy and weaponize them to uh, win debates. So I knew I wanted to do philosophy when I came here. And at first I wanted to work on German idealism. So I go to the philosophy department, I'm like, hey, I want to learn about 19th century German thought. And they said no. And I was like, (laughs) oh, what am I going to do? And they're like, you do classics. I'm like, yeah. And so, uh, so I ended up being mentored by uh, Dr. Jim Lesher, who sort of, I took his ancient philosophy class, and he really encouraged me and told me I was good at it, and I really enjoyed it. It was really fun. So I took an independent study with him, and I took graduate classes here with Professors Reeve and Professor Lunison, and they were really good. And I went to Oxford for a year, uh, my junior year, to work with uh, people there in ancient philosophy, and that was really good, too. So I said, huh, maybe can I get paid to do this? And then it turns out grad schools give you stipends and health insurance. So I decided to become an ancient philosopher. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> and um, Mariska, we talked a little bit about your book project while you were a, um, while you were a fellow here yeah. with us. How does this collaboration work into that book project? So that book project is done. Oh, finally, great. took forever, but it's done. Um, but this project is sort of a similar. So what I like to do with Aristotle is it's not really interdisciplinary, but I like to combine different works into one project. So for the, the previous one, I was looking at the ethics and politics from like a biological perspective. And here what I like to do is use the topics, which is traditionally seen as this treatise that lays out um, a method for doing philosophy to see how those methods actually apply in scientific contexts. And so there is a question of whether or not that's actually possible, whether that can be done. And Jake has been instrumental in showing that that can be done. So now hopefully I'll have a new, I'll need to write a research statement soon. I'm going up for full next year, so I'll need to have a new project. And I think I've got my new project. Well, that's great. (laughs) Well, thank you very much for taking the time to speak with me today, Jake and Mariska. Thanks a lot. Thank you. Thank you. Rode went on to Yale to pursue a graduate degree in classics and philosophy. We also had the chance to sit in on one of their sessions. that in scientific explanations, right? He uh, accuses Plato uh, uh, because he says everything's fire and light's fire of asking why everyone doesn't go blind when it rains. We say that's not charitable, <laughs> right? That's like taking it too far. But what it shows is that Aristotle has very, he has rules in mind for when it's appropriate to deploy an analogy because he's willing to say that the pupil is the lamp of the eye, but that has a very specific meaning and he doesn't go in for these general analogies. Yeah, I thought that was very cool in your paper how you, you can see how Aristotle sort of first attacks particular analogy and then 
reuses it, but then in the proper scientific way. I thought that was pretty neat. Yeah, Um, and so the heads of fishes... I mean, that that can be by accident that he's doing that. (laughs) No, I think you're right that it's he's shifting the focus from, like, the whole eye as a lantern to just the pupil as the... what is sort of like a lantern or a lamp. And I take it that because it's in this NASA transparent that it's like a lantern in that when you have a lantern, you have, like, a glass or transparent container with light in it, and so the pupil... I don't think it's like the light in the lantern. I think the idea is that it's like the structure of a physical lantern that you would hold. I don't know. He seems to think a lot about reflection and transparency, like in his mm-hmm. criticism of Democritus, where he's, if, if uh, sight's reflection, why, aren't, why, why don't mirrors see me right, <laughs> when I look at it? So, so you bring up in uh, your response that you sent me this GA5 passage on uh-huh. discussion difference in eye color and sight. I'm not super familiar with that, so I wonder to what extent that is parallel or contrasting the treatment of the eye there. Well, so that one he also criticized Empedocles. Mm-hmm. So that's, I mean, I guess anytime he mentions the eye, for some reason, the lantern analogy is such a famous thing in antiquity that he has to say something about that. But what is interesting there is that he has no trouble just turning immediately to saying, well, eyes are made out of moisture, hence they're made out of water. Mm-hmm. Different densities produce different kinds of colors of the eyes and those depending on what color of eye you have, you'll see better during the day or better during the night. And so he's, he can attach functional differences to material differences. Hmm. Um, and so that discussion seems sort of straightforwardly scientific, whereas in the De Sensu, he seems to take a detour through all of the predecessors, refuting them all right. along, and then make his claim. What I kind of like about the De Sensu is that it's sort of obviously ambiguous, so that this whole idea that you can just take a treatise and say, oh, it's just science or it's just dialectic makes no sense. Because even though Aristotle starts out in a manner that fits with a dialectical method, he immediately dives into doing science because what he's doing is refuting alternative scientific explanations yeah. with his own science, which obviously he thinks is superior. Yeah. And then once he's done with that, he says, oh, and now it's easily intelligible the way you translate it that actually the inner part of I is water. And yeah, there's these other words that we've picked out that he's, that seem to carry weight, like appeals to what's impossible, a dunaton. Mm-hmm. You pick out what's empty to say, canon, and what's strange, octopod. There's necessity, okay. Although that he at least spells that out so we can say, like, oh, this is material necessity. Here. Yeah, but even that is so. interesting. It's not sort of like just a logical argumentative necessity. It's not because we've just put down these arguments. That's why it's necessary. No, it's yeah. because all of these other assumptions about nature and about how vision works and what I've just said, that's why it's necessary that this follows. Yeah. And so that's strictly scientific, I would think. It's funny, though. I still don't fully understand what he's actually what he's actually saying here about seeing and being seen, like the flash of the eye. Like, is that when you just close your eyes and it's dark and you move them quickly and, like, you see a weird boop? Yeah, I think it's just you close your eyes and you push, you press on your, your eyeballs and you see all these flashes of light. And so that's Empedocles' evidence that the eye is made out of yeah. fire. I mean, Aristotle does sort of similar things, like where you have, you know, you you come up with some kind of ad hoc explanation, and then you just point to one or two things that are sort of similar, like the the cuttlefish that you mentioned. I mean, that's sort of a similar random other fact where you have something smooth and then kind of a... Even though 
he's citing Empedocles as saying it's not an endux uh, that you see the flashes when you press on it. It's mm-hmm. observation. Right. And it seems that he almost needs to have these like Ramsey sentences where he can say this is the observation I'm pulling from and this is the bogus explanation that I'm going to throw away and substitute with my own. And then it seems like I almost want to assimilate a lot of these dialectical maneuvers to what, like, in philosophy of science, people would say, like, theory choice, right? Mm -hmm. Like, we all have the same observational sort of data built in, and then we sort of give these reasons to prefer one theory that explains the underlying phenomenon and has greater economy, that's less ad hoc, Uh that fits in with the rest of our science. And then we continue there, but... Yeah, exactly. I mean, that's sort of the interesting thing about these types of texts where just the empirical evidence alone, you know, there's not enough to give you a, a clear lead to what the explanation should be. And so you need other stuff to figure that out. The next Honors Collaboration Grant deadline is March 7th, but check back at iah.unc.edu for the latest news on our fellows and upcoming events at Hyde Hall. You can find all our episodes of the podcast on our website, as well as iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. Please like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at IAH underscore UNC.